So hello and welcome to the latest episode of the new PL, Principles and Leadership in Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, host of the new PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or another platform and you like what you hear, please take a moment to review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to ensure you never miss another episode of the new PL or subscribe to the newsletter, go to principlesandleadership.com. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week's guest on the new PL is the inimitable Sue Izzo. After a stellar 20-year career as the self-described female Jerry Maguire in the sports management industry, representing and building the personal brands of some of the most successful sports women and men on the planet, Sue sold her sports management agency she founded in the mid-2000s and now works as a specialist brand and marketing consultant to small business owners, entrepreneurs and decision makers across the globe. So Sue, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. Um, I introduced you as the female Jerry Maguire in the preamble to this podcast. Sure. Um, so to start the podcast, for those listeners who may not be familiar with the, the Hollywood blockbuster movie, could you explain what led to you having this name or being defined as the, the female Jerry Maguire, <laughs> followed by a brief overview of what you do now? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so I started my sports management company when I was, what, 1999, I was 25. And when people would ask me what I do for a living, I would say, oh, I'm, you know, a sports agent. And they'd be like, oh, what is, what's that? And I'm like, you ever see the movie Jerry Maguire? So um, pretty much what it means is that I procure and negotiate endorsement deals. So when you see an athlete holding up a Pepsi or what have you, you know, I've either gotten that deal for them and negotiated it and all the terms. So that's pretty much uh, what I did for 20 years, close to 20 years. And on top of that, it was, it was more than just the deals. I really focused on building athlete brands um, and helping them develop um, entertainment projects, uh, event properties, build their own businesses. I was really in the business of building a 360 brand for, for professional athletes in the action sports and Olympic arena. Okay. And you... Sold Mosaic in 2015? I did, yes. I sold Mosaic to a very large sports management agency, Octagon. Um, they represent Michael Phelps and those types of athletes. And um, I left that and I decided to continue on my entrepreneurial journey, which, you know, is pretty much the same. is just helping business owners, entrepreneurs, CC executives um, build their businesses and brands uh, through marketing and brand positioning with an em emphasis on mentorship, mindset, and happiness. Yeah. You launched Mosaic at 25 years old. Um, yeah. It can be tough to start a business so young. It can be even tougher to start a business as a young female entrepreneur in the early 90s and, and tougher still to go into such a competitive, macho, male-dominated industry like sports management. Yeah. What are some of the moments you recall when 
you felt it might have been too much? And how did you talk yourself through that? Get up in the morning, keep motivated and keep pushing. Sure. I mean, there was such beauty in being so young because A, I didn't go to school to study it. B, I had really never, you know, knew what sports management truly was. I just kind of fell into it. Um, so there was a lot of naivete with that. So that definitely helped. Um, in terms of wanting to stay in bed and cry, I would laugh. I mean, I'd say that happened maybe every other week. Um, you know, it was kind of a running joke in my office about, you know, people would be wondering like if I went out to lunch, but really I was like under my desk rocking back and forth going, how am I going to pull this off? Um, <laughs> so it happened a lot, but I would say what kept me going, um, was my passion and my, my belief in my, in my athletes. You know, when you see somebody that, you know, is working so hard and so talented and you know, you know, the possibilities for them. Um, that's what got me up every day. And I also think that what, you know, owning the agency, I wasn't just a sports agent. I was really able to, you know, really tap into my creativity. And so that's where I got excited to be able to help them build businesses, you know, create and produce these entertainment projects. You know, I really was able to fill all my needs um, having the agency. So yeah, that absolutely got, got, helped me get back up every day. Yeah. Just to, to jump back to a point you made and you've reiterated it there, you talked about developing 360 sort of programs for those athletes. So giving them the full brand, uh, building a personal brand, if you like, rather than just representing the sports person. Was it challenging? I know things have moved on significantly now, but was it challenging at that point to get those athletes to understand the value of the, the whole person, if you like, in terms of the brand rather than just the athlete. Sure. Um, you know, there was, there was somewhat some beauty in starting so young because I was very naive about what it took to build a business, let alone a sports management agency. Um, so that was kind of the good part of it. Um, the bad part of it was, you know, I would be rocking back and forth under my desk every quarter wondering how I was going to pull things off. Um, you know, I think what kept me going was the belief in my athletes. When you see mm. kids that are so talented and you see their potential and almost you're dreaming bigger for them than what they're capable of dreaming at that time, um, that's what got me up every day. The mm. other thing was owning the agency, I was allowed to be creative. It wasn't just I. my job was just to go negotiate deals. It was how do I build their personal brand? So what entertainment projects could we create and produce? What kind of event properties? What kind of businesses? Um, so that really fed me. So every day was, you know, fulfilling for me. Yeah. You were incredibly successful through that 20-year period. What, what do you think you did differently to other agencies that enabled you to, to grow so successfully and thrive? Yeah, I, I have to credit that somewhat, somewhat to my father, um, you know, from a young age, <laughs> um, my dad was always so kind to people and I watched him invest in people. And I think that was what I knew immediately um, was, you know, if I, from the get go, it was, if you can become the best version of yourself, you know, personally, you could become the best professional um, out there. So these were young kids. I mean, action sports athletes, I was signing them at 16 and 17 years old. So there was a lot of cultivation and growth and teaching and mentoring. Um, you know, I said I wore every hat in the book uh, with these guys. Um, so that was really a big part of it was the people. I also, 
you know, I didn't have backing and I didn't have all this money. I, when I first started out, I was temping in the mornings, you know, from eight to one o'clock as a, you know, different jobs. And then I was coming home and working on mosaic. So, you know, it wasn't like someone gave me a Rolodex of, you know, marketing directors and company owners for me. I had to really hustle and be creative. And so, you know, I couldn't send these people that I was trying to woo for sponsorship deals for my clients, you know, tickets to the Celtics or the Knicks or wherever. So I would literally show up with um, pasta sauce, you know, I'm hundred percent Italian. So I had to think about what I could give. And so nice. for me, it was, how do I make it so personal? And I knew everybody had a family. So I'd show up with a big pot of marinara and give it to them. And so that's how I invested in the relationships. I really paid attention to people and their lives, not just showing up once a year to negotiate a contract. I really, I really wanted to develop relationships. So I think yeah. that was, and the personalized attention I gave to my clients, their parents loved it. The athletes loved it. Everybody grew under me. Um, so I think that's what really separated me from the pack and what yeah. I was known for. You mentioned in that answer there that you were, when you first launched, you were temping in the morning, mosaic in the afternoon. And lots of entrepreneurs feel they need to be always on, always robust and always focused. And whilst that drive and inspiration is clearly important, too much drive or too little acknowledgement of the balance of personal needs and vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. can also lead to burnout and and mental health challenges that, that come with that. I wonder whether you could give some advice to the entrepreneurs listening today about, you know, around that myth of the always on, entrepreneurial mentality how did you and those that you worked with balance the passion and the drive but also the need for for switching off if you like sure sure i mean you gotta fill your cup right um i think when you're starting off i always and i talk about this with my about my athletes as well as an um, entrepreneur you start off as the hunter right like you're going out there to get your first success and get your first contract and your first deal same with the athletes their first win um, and then it flips and you become the hunted, right? It's backing up another success. So we get this mindset that we have to, you know, it's the next thing that'll make us happy. That I'll be happy when, you know, yeah. that whole mindset. And you forget, like you put, you start making your whole stuff worth around your outcomes and your successes. And that is such a slippery, slippery slope. Um, I, my advice to entrepreneurs is pretty much, you know, I remember when someone said to me, start a gratitude journal. And I was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like how stupid, right? And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do a gratitude journal. And it was, oh, I'm grateful for my family and friends and my house and blah, 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 blah. And after five days, I was done. And I'm like, what, what's the point of this thing, right? And that's when it hit me because it was the small things. It was the birds outside my window. It was my first sip of coffee. It was, you know, seeing the neighborhood kids playing. And I think that goes back to, you know, not being burnt out. It's seeing, finding the small pieces of joy throughout a day and making sure that's woven in your life. Also, your self-worth. And, you know, it can't be totally based on the outcomes of your career and your business. It has to come from other places as well, along with self-love and um, and that sounds woo-woo, but it's very true. I mean, a lot of times when we get in business, we start doing things we don't ne- aren't necessarily the best reflection of ourselves mm-hmm. just to get to the dollar or the next success. So I think really taking time and giving grace 
to growing personally, evolving personally, and having that check-in, you know, with yourself. Yeah. You touched on that that point there, I'll be happy when, and I read your blog from 2019 that, that went into quite a lot of detail around that. I wondered at what point in your career did you, was it the gratitude journal, or at what point in your career did you have that realization that actually happiness is to be found in the small things every day rather than looking forward to the achievements in the future. Right. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I'll be happy when I'll never forget it. When I was standing in my office, you know, business was booming and I said, I'll be happy when this happens. And my employee turned to me, one of my employees turned to me and she said, you realize you say that all the time, like, and it always changes. And it, it like stopped me dead in my tracks. And I almost dismissed her in a way like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then I kept thinking about it and I was like, wow, she's really right. You know, I keep saying when I get this client or they win this medal or this project goes through, I'll be happy. Um, and my definition of success kept changing, right? It kept yeah. going higher and higher and higher. And then, you know, to be totally honest, um, you know, I had a lifelong um, journey with depression from a very young age. And when I was 35 years old, I was at the peak of my career. I mean, I couldn't have been making more money. I couldn't have been more successful. And I remember the day I left the office. It was, uh, it was actually April 20th. And I went home. I got some bad news, um, business, bad business news. And I remember I left the office. It was just, it was a mountain of stuff that was piling up. It wasn't just this one incident. It was, it was years in the making. And I remember going home and telling everyone in my office I'd be back. And I went home and I just started taking a ton of pills. And I've been wrestling with, you know, um, depression, mental illness forever. And I broke. And I remember just, you know, I remember the next day being in an ambulance and then being in a hospital and then being in an outpatient treatment center and realizing how broken I was and how sad I was. And it was crazy because I had achieved everything and more than I could have ever dreamt, dreamed of, right? It was like, the house, the cars, the money, you know, the accolades, I had it. And, but I was so miserable. And, um, you know, I was able to kind of semi bounce back from that. But actually, four years later, I got back to that point again. And it was right before my 40th birthday. And I remember calling my parents and saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to make it to 40. So I've been in therapy, I've done outpatient programs, I'm going to check myself into a facility. Now, People were like, what are you going to go do? I'm like, no, I'm like, either I'm not going to make this because I'm so miserable or I need to finally like deal with the trauma and deal with yeah. the sadness and all of that. And I checked myself into a treatment center in Munnally, Tennessee and gave up all my rights, right? Like they don't let you have, you know, shampoo or deodorant because we're afraid you're going to eat it, you know, for the alcohol, which I wasn't in there for. But, um, you know, and in that time, I really... It was, a, it was a smack in the face because what happened was one of the first exercises they gave me was they handed me a mirror, hand mirror, and they asked me to say five affirmations um, in the mirror, it was, you know, looking at myself. And I was like, I can't believe I just paid like $30,000 to like say good things about myself in a mirror. Like, again, totally impatient how stupid this is. And the minute I lifted up that mirror and looked at it, saw the reflection, I broke down and threw it because mm -hmm. I just couldn't see any good. And that was the moment when I really realized how much I didn't like myself, how all those successes and accolades and the I'll be happy when truly meant nothing 
because here I was with all of it, but internally I was just, you know, loathing myself. And I had to learn, number one, that it was okay to like myself. Number two, it was okay to love myself. And again, that whole thing about the baby steps of, of happiness and joy. And I remember getting out of there and, you know, leaving and, and really thinking, what makes me happy? And I didn't have an answer because all my answers led back to my athletes doing well, my business being successful, you know, all of that stuff. And I remember being, you know, I played a lot of tennis when I was younger. And the first thing that came to mind was, I'm going to go take tennis lessons. And I didn't need them, trust me. Um, but I had to go back to basics of happiness and learning to do that and reintroducing um, these little things that just made me happy and put a smile on my face or made me laugh because laughter is really important to me. Um, I found my balance and yeah. it's been a beautiful, wonderful life, you know, ever since I figured out these things. That's quite a journey over a few years. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. When you were working with your athletes, mm -hmm. you worked with some of the genuinely some of the greatest athletes in the world, Olympians, yep. ESPY winners, yep. Sofia Milanovic, the third time, three time world surfing champion, um, which when we had the briefing call blew me away when you told me that. Yeah. Um, during that time working with them, you got to know them personally as well as professionally. So I wanted to ask you sort of two questions on, on that. What, if anything, do you feel sets these champions apart in terms of the way they think, in terms of the way they act? Is there anything or, or is it within all of us and it's just a mix of opportunity, hard work, good luck and so on? A uh, combination, a combination, right? Like I think that all of us are born with a certain level of talent, innate talent um, and intelligence. And then it's those who choose to, you know, that have a drive and have a, you know, competitive edge. Also, what I think really a big thing that I saw was people who would ask for help. Right. Now, you know, when you're, when you're coming up, it's, you know, there's so much out there, right? Like follow this thought leader and that thought leader, take this course and all of that. And you know, there's this machismo thing of I got to do it on my own, right? And I think recently in the past, maybe five years, 10 years, you know, people are really, um, you know, really sticking their teeth into asking for help and the whole mentor thing and, yeah. you know, being a part of different organizations like EO or Summit, you know. Um, so I think that's really when my athletes would say, you know what, I could be better or maybe I can learn something. That's what really turned the corner for them and started separating them. I mean, I remember, you know, again, you've got these 17-year-old kids who are going from virtually nobody to mm -hmm. all of a sudden making millions of dollars, right? And it's because they're winning. Um, and so self-worth is really tied into that. So then all of a sudden, then what happens if you lose? So, you know, being able to develop and ask for help to say, all right, maybe I need some mindset work or maybe visualization, or maybe I need a dietitian, or maybe I need a trainer. These are the ones that I really saw, um, you know, kind of get to the top. Yeah. Um, also people that had just really good support systems around them because like anybody that does well successfully, you know, you get a lot of, I don't want, not leeches, but just, you know, kind of like faux friends and supporters, you know? Um, so, you know, when you have really solid people around you, I think that helps keep you grounded and centered and they're there for you unconditionally. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by high-performing athletes who sit at 
the sixth or the fifth or the fourth place in the world consistently. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there's probably an acknowledgement and, you know, tennis is one that pops into my mind yeah. because you've just flagged it up and there's always been three or four at the top for the last decade, really. So there's a group that sit below them. How in your mind do you keep motivated when there's probably an internal recognition, you're never going to be the number one, but you could be the best number four or the best number five or the best number six you could be. But that's quite a, to get to that level of your achievement, but not quite peak, if you like. I wonder how you keep motivated. And I wonder what your, your views were having dealt with some of those athletes. Sure. Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely frustrating when you're putting in, you know, equally as amount, uh, same amount of work as the number one guys and you're not getting the same results. Um, that's absolutely frustrating. What I found with some of my clients, some of them in that position was um, they wanted to be, they, maybe they couldn't be the best of the entire thing, but they really found one niche within it to really right. excel at. So like in my mind, it's like, you know, for surfers, uh, they weren't going to be like the best competitor, but they were going to be the best freestyle surfer that was able to do aerials and, yes. you know, all of that, or like a snowboarder that's known for in competitions, like, yeah, he kept getting six, seven, but he would break off and go do these video projects, you know, that were just so creative and mind blowing and artistic. Yeah. Right. So they found other little avenues. Sometimes, you know, you're not, maybe you don't know that yet, but like maybe the competition part isn't what you're really truly meant to do, or that's not your sweet spot. And that's okay. They still love competing. They still love going to the contest series, but yeah. they have these other things that they do that truly light them up as well. Yeah. If the movie Jerry Maguire is to be believed and many other anecdotes that you read from time to time in other books, sure. sports management industry can be pretty aggressive <sighs> and cutthroat and underhand. Yes. yes. How do you maintain principles in, in, in an industry like that where maintaining those principles may put you at a competitive mm. disadvantage? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I have to say that my big mouth and my principles and what I thought was right got me in more trouble than I care to, you know, <laughs> say. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. I do think that it's important, of course, you know, to have principles and you know know your values um what i learned over time was really was picking and choosing the battles and also really understanding what my desired end game was because mm -hmm. i would fight for injustice and everybody under the sun and say this is wrong all the time but i didn't really have an idea of what i really wanted the ultimate outcome to be yeah. Um, and making sure that it wasn't just a self-serving me morally, that it was for a greater good that I was doing it for. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was learning that, that I think was pivotal for me. And then I was really able to put more power and resources into that cause or that belief. Um, you know, but I did make a lot of mistakes in terms of fighting battles that were a detriment to myself and my athletes. And I have, I hate using the word regrets, but you know, I do have some regrets. Of, I wish I learned that lesson a little earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, over the course of your career, you've negotiated literally hundreds of millions of pounds and yes. deals between huge stars and even bigger fortune 500 companies. Yes. Um, so with both the sports management hat, but also the marketing hat on, I wanted to ask a question around 
what responsibility you feel sports and celebrity influencers and product endorsers have to their followers and their audiences, especially those that are a bit young and more impressionable. You know, what responsibilities come with the privilege of being in that position, if you like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, from an athlete standpoint, it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, once again, we're plucking these kids out of, you know, from such a young age. And can you imagine, like, if you were 16 to 21 years old and your entire, like, that period of growth was documented and put out publicly? Like, no, thank you. Not for me. Um, So, you know, that's, you have to take that into consideration that that's a time of, you know, growth and discovery and experimentation. you know, a lot of athletes are short-sighted, rightfully so, they're young, right? So they don't realize sometimes that what they're doing at a young age is going to be out there forever. I do have athletes that have looked back and really cringed at decisions they made and they fought me on them, you know? I mean, they were little shitheads, excuse my language, but they were, you know? I mean, they're they're full of vinegar and piss and they're just like, ah, this is what I'm doing, I'm the rebel, you know? And you're like, no, trust me, you're really not going to be psyched on that one. Um, but you know, I think what I say to the athletes, what I say to business owners, what I say to brands is, you know, you can market it and say that you're this, that, and the other thing, but if it's not out there consistently, um, on your personal social media, what your friends are taking photos of and putting out there of you, you know, it's going to fall apart. So I think you have to be really aware of you know, what you're trying to market yourself versus being who you are um, and having that be consistent, um, you know, across the board. Do you think it's part of a wider challenge that we have with sort of authenticity and trust? You know, they seem very, in many respects, very frail commodities at the moment in the world more generally. And, and, you know, whether in sports people or celebrities, everyone needs to play their role in, Mm -hmm. in balancing that, you know, obviously they need to make money and endorsements are a way to do that, but also balancing their authenticity alongside that. Of course. Yeah. I mean, we have done endorsement deals. You know, I remember we took $85,000 for uh, a food product for one of my athletes and we took it because of the money and it was silly across the board. I remember being on the shoot, the commercial shoot and like, fighting with the creative directors of the agency being like, I am not having my athlete do that. You know, it's not who they are. Um, you know, and it was a huge learning lesson to be yeah. like, wow, you really have to be careful. Like the money's not worth it. And so we, you know, that's where I kind of developed the, the pillars of what kind of deals we would take. And it was, you know, either it was the best company in the game, you know, and the dollars were there and it fit the athlete in their needs. It was, something of it would be a brand that raised their profile you know being in good company or it would be a passion you know something they really believed in and once kind of those were set in motion it was you know a no-brainer in terms of deals and i think you know with companies it's no different companies and brands it's no different i mean we have seen such cultural shift this year and if you look at people's social media or marketing campaigns you can literally see the timeline of when everyone was jumping on cultural issues, right? And then you go back to their social media pages and it's like, you never see it mentioned again. So to me, it's the companies that, because it does start with leadership, right? It has to be a part of the vision and the values and the purpose of the company. It has to come from leadership 
and it has to be one of the pillars and it has to be woven through all the people within that company. And I think some of the best ones are the ones that aren't, that don't market it, that are yeah. doing it without people looking and doing it without the likes. Um, and it has to be true to the brand. It doesn't make sense if you're just jumping on to jump on, you'll be called out in no time. Um, so I think that that's really important. So I'd like to explore that a little bit more with you. Sure. We've seen some great examples in the UK um, this year of sports people and, and in recent years, sports people using their position for social good and social change. In the last few months in the UK, Marcus Rashford, one of the UK's top premiership footballers, he's led a very high profile campaign that ultimately overturned the government's decision not to extend free meals to children through the pandemic during the holiday time. Um, and it was a hugely successful campaign and overturned government decisions. So he's used his platform for, for powerful positive action, if you like. And you've seen, as you've highlighted, very similar examples in the US. But what's your view on how brands can stand positively behind these individuals to ensure, A, that they're not alienated for making that positive stand based on a passionate belief, but also B, that in standing behind them, they take positive action, not just deliver words or virtual signal, as, you, as you've just alluded to. How do I, they yeah. demonstrate their belief and their support rather than just vocalize it? Right. I mean, I think, you know, U.S., like I, I recall, um, you know, back in the day, I remember there was a professional snowboarder, one of the most winningest snowboarders ever, and she was a devout Christian. And she wanted to put the sticker Jesus on her snowboard. And her sponsor was not, they weren't for it. And, you know, I watched her with that and she wouldn't back down and I give her so much credit. And it was kind of her test of time of her faith and that company's marketing directors, the amount of marketing directors that have sat in that seat in comparison to her duration of her winning career, you know, it's kind of funny. I think that, you know, it is difficult for brands who have a board of directors. If you're publicly traded, you know, you're answering to a you know, kind of a different level. Um, it's not just the marketing director making a decision. Um, you know, you're, you're answering to a board and, you know, their stock prices. Um, I think, you know, privately held companies, maybe there, I do think there's more conversation that could be had. I think that one thing that we would try to do is if there was something that was incredibly passionate and important to my athletes and they really walked that walk and it was a part of who they were, we made sure that the, the partners and the sponsors knew that before they signed up. And we would also carve out clauses in their contract because we, again, like I said, leadership changes. So what one person agrees to doesn't mean the next guy is going to agree yes. to it. Yeah. So, you know, you have to kind of take that. And, you know, I would get pushed back all the time from brands. Like we're, we've never done that in a contract. And I said, well, listen, I would always say at the end of the day, if we end up in court, this is all based on language and interpretation of language. So as long as I have it in here, then it's a point we can contest. I can't contest an email. So, you know, so I think that's really important. I also think that, you know, there's a lot of, I always say there's a huge difference between um, listening and hearing people, right? Yeah. So um, being able to actually hear what someone's saying and understand it and have that, or actually listening to them and like understanding you know, why they feel this way, what it will do, and coming, you know, to have a personal understanding of it, that changes things, you know, I yeah. think, or can change things. This year, as we've just suggested, it's been the year of social upheaval. It's also been a year yeah. of 
economic and societal upheaval with the pandemic. Um, I wanted to ask a sort of broader question, whether mm -hmm. you or how you think the pandemic has or will change entrepreneurship. What will be its lasting impact on entrepreneurship? Sure. Yeah, I, I like this question a lot because um, it's kind of right up my alley. I think that what this has really shown us and forced a lot of people to do is get creative, yeah. uh, innovate, um, focus on relationships, right? I, I constantly talk to people about your nurture funnel with your relationships. Like people have 2000 contacts on LinkedIn. When is the last time you talked to, you know, half of them? right? Mm -hmm. Or even sent a message to them. So I think, you know, really spending time and it's not just what people can do for you, but also what you can do for them. Um, yeah. There's a lot of beauty that comes out of that. It's out of, it comes out of service. So I think we're seeing that across the board. I, I truly want to believe in the kindness in humanity. I know that the media covers a lot of negativity, obviously, and it is out there. Um, but there are these stories of people helping other people. Yeah. And I do like, you know, I, I know friends that have these like Twitter groups that, you know, will post about each other to help them, you know, and I really like that a lot because I think if we lift each other up, we're all going to win. Um, I do feel for small businesses. I mean, this is a very, very real and scary time. It was disheartening here in the United States when they were giving out these loans and you saw these Fortune 500 companies, you know, getting these loans and small business owners being denied. Mm. You know, these are the people that are the fabric of our countries, right? Like this is how it was all started, you know? So um, I think everyone deserves a fair shake and be able to run a business and start a business and have opportunities for loans and grants. Um, I also think that this entire Zoom nation has been kind of rad too, because everybody had to be in an office, you know, forever. Right. And so this has really been nice to be able to connect with people, get your work done. Um, granted, I do not have small children. So I do feel for all of you out there that have those small kids that are taking up the majority of your day when you're trying to get stuff done. So I feel for you. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's, like I said, it really calls for creativity and innovation and nurturing your relationships. Yeah. We're coming towards the end of the the podcast. So I wanted to ask a couple of questions about you personally. I, I wondered sure. whether with all of your experience over the last 25 years or so, is the Sioux of today more or less ambitious than the Sioux that set up Mosaic Sports Management in 25? Um, wow. I think it's a different sort of ambition, right? Like not the, the dream of helping other people make their dreams come true that's never changed. That yeah. will always be who I am and why I'm put on this earth is to help others, um, try to make it a little easier for them and help them. Um, I think what's different now from the ambition side comes with you know, happiness being a priority. Um, I think ambition is, you know, it's a bigger, um, it's like a, almost like a now it's like before it was like my bubble of athletes and now i just have this like huge like span of people that i just want to help so it's yeah. it's almost opened it up the ambition um i realize i can do more now i um, mean that excites me um and i think like you know we're, we're before 
my ambition would be like that little kid that was like playing with the block, trying to squeeze it into the round hole, you know, ambition. Now I'm like, okay, the circle goes with the circle, the square goes with the square. And if it doesn't work out, eh, next. So I think it's just a little bit more grace now. Um, Same, same ambition, but more boundaries, more perspective and more joy. Yes. One of the questions you, as I understand from your website, you ask clients at the start of your work with them is ultimately what do they want to be known for? So my question to you as we get to second to last question of this interview is what do you want to be known for and how close do you think you are to it? Wow. Um, What do I want to be known for? I think, um, you know, I have this saying that I say all the time and it's just part of my mantra and it's, I love you, keep going. Um, And I think that's kind of in a way sums up what I want to be known for uh, in terms of really lifting people up and helping them stay the course to achieve whatever that may be both personally and professionally. Um, I definitely want to be known for giving more than taking. Mm -hmm. That really matters to me. Um, And I just, you know, I think... um, yeah, I think those two things like really matter, matter to me a lot. So, you know, I don't know if that's ever, that's an end, that's a, a destination that you end at, right? I think it's a, always and forever um, doing those sort of things. So yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to be known well, for. As long as it's bringing you happiness today, not in the future, I guess that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's okay to like, you know, again, strive and have ambitions, yeah. right? But just don't, ignore what you're standing in right now because that's kind yes. of beautiful too even the mess is beautiful yeah. you know you can't see it sometimes and the pain really hurts but it's like there is beauty in right now um so uh, you know i'm not saying be woo but you know finally sue we always end the new pnl by asking guests to leave listeners with just one or two key points they can take away and potentially use in their business uh-huh. what parting advice would you give to our listeners business owners entrepreneurs senior execs when it comes to building their businesses? Sure. Um, I think you need to make, you know, investing in people um, a part of your daily to-do list. Um, I think that's just, I think at the end of the day, that's what, you know, creates success. Or it's not the sum of one, it's the sum of the whole. So I think it's, that is really important. So, you know, be aware of the people around you, invest in the people around you. Um, also too, I think that, you know, personal development is not just for, you know, a lot of people think it is a woo-woo thing, but I think um, personal development in the way of, you don't have to go it alone. It's okay to be asking, not, it's more than okay, it's great to ask for help and to look to others that have done it before you um, to learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the biggest things too is, you know, when someone says no, that's just no for now. You know, I don't, I, I don't believe in, in, in giving up on, on yourself or on, you know, other opportunities. I think yes. that, you know, really looking just, okay, next, let's keep going. Um, yeah, and, and make happiness priority. So thank you for being a wonderful guest on the new PL. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about what Sue does and how she works with entrepreneurs and CEOs and leaders across the globe, please go to sueizzo.com. So that's sueizzo.com. And you'll also find the web address in the notes that accompany this podcast.
And as I mentioned in the introduction, please do take a moment to review us. We genuinely appreciate it and it makes a difference. And if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter and keep up on all the latest information from the new PL, go to principlesandleadership.com. So I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening. Don't forget to check in on Friday when we will deliver the new PL to the point, which will be a 10-minute succinct summary of our discussion with Sue today. Have a great day and speak soon.